Guys, thank you for being here. Thank you for facing the cold. Thank you for believing that God is honored by your presence and that the Lord may just have something for you. Been praying for the the few, the courageous, the faithful. And I am asking for God to bless us in a special way. And I am excited, real excited, about our Bible study that we're about to enjoy together. So, uh, I wanted to share with you, I, I, I often have had folks' parents come up to me and say, tell me about how your parents did it. They raised three boys who all loved Jesus wildly. In fact, all three boys felt and followed God's call into pastoral ministry. And they're like, how did they do it? Sometimes around th- um, Thanksgiving, oh, close, uh, Halloween, I've had parents say, how did your folks handle the Halloween question? Some Christians have decided to take a pass on Halloween because of all the connections to evil. And so they wanted to know, is that the, what my folks did? And I, I would give them the short answer. I'd say, no, my, my parents did choose to participate in some of the Halloween tradition. And that was the short answer. I'll give you the longer story. Are you ready for this? One uh, unforgettable Halloween, we were just finished carving our pumpkins, and then we lit candles and put them in the jack-o'-lantern and stood back and turned off all the lights and admired our artwork and got a little freaked out, I'll be honest. We were young boys, and those pumpkins in the dark like that can look a little scary. And so being scared, I started looking for the light switch and went to flip the lights on, and it wouldn't turn on. I went to the next light switch. All the lights were off. My dad, getting real goofy, had thought it would be fun to scare his kids to death. So while we were admiring the pumpkins, he went downstairs to the fuse box, (laughs) turned off all the power to the whole house. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. (laughs) And while he was in the basement, he thought, I should put on a costume and scare them. And my dad had a costume right there in the basement. He had been in the church play, and he thought he'd put on his church play costume. In the church play, my dad played Satan. So my father put on his Beelzebub costume. And with a flashlight shining on his face, he stumbled up the stairs, groaning, To say that my brothers and I were scared is the understatement of the century. We just about had a heart attack and died. We were stopped breathing, turned white, and as my dad looked at us, he realized, maybe I've gone over the top a little bit. (laughs) My boys (laughs) look like they're going to die. And so my dad, realizing he'd gone too far, whipped off his mask and said, don't worry, it's just me, it's just me which didn't comfort us at all, actually, seeing that, in fact, Satan is your father in disguise, you know, just caused untold anguish. And my, my brothers and I were scarred and have been receiving counseling for this episode nearly ever since. Well, my dad realizes in retrospect that he got a little caught up in the moment and went way, way overboard. You know, it just doesn't make sense for a good dad to want his children to be utterly terrified of him. And yet, 
It's exactly what we're going to be studying today. A passage where God appears to his children in horrific, scary, terrifying fashion precisely to instill them with fear of him. We're going to be talking about this concept called the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. Maybe you've realized that. I'm sure most of you have. Maybe you've heard of, you know, they're a good God-fearing person. Maybe that's always kind of bugged you. You're like, why, why, why are people talking about being afraid of God as if it's some virtue? And yet we find in Scripture that over 300 times the Scriptures call us to fear the Lord. And this is a very confusing concept. Because most of us, you know, when we think of fearing somebody, it's an awful thing, a terrible thing, a thing that makes us want to have nothing to do with them. And so what is the fear of the Lord? Why is it so important? And can we enter into it in a healthy way? This series called Apex, uh, The Exhilaration of Knowing God, is a study of how we can know God. We're learning from the Israelites when they camped at Mount Sinai for 11 months. And we're about to discover that if you want a relationship with God, if you want your relationship with God to be all that it can be, you've got to learn to fear him. The fear of God is an essential component in a healthy relationship with God. And maybe at this point I've caused more unrest than you care to. Well, I pray that that is resolved. And as we continue our study, I pray that you grow to appreciate and even love the reality of the fear of God. So, shall we? Exodus. This entire series is a study in the second half of the book of Exodus. Today we're in verse chapter 19, starting in verse 16. It says there that on the, third, on the morning of the third day, they've been at Mount Sinai for three days. God had proposed to them. Remember, he said, I want you to be my segula, my treasured possession. I rescued you on eagle's wings. I want us to have a covenant relationship. The Israelites said yes. God brought back their answer. They said yes. God says, tell them on the third day I'm going to appear to them. And that's what they've been awaiting. On the morning of the third day, there was a powerful thunder and lightning storm. And a dense cloud came down upon the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. you got to imagine this. You woke up, and there is just this thunder and lightning. You're like, oh, you crawl out of your tent, and you see that the storm is condensed at the peak of Mount Sinai. A dense cloud has descended and is covering that peak, and out of that cloud, bolts of lightning. And then this mysterious ram's horn, this piercing call of some divine horn. Nobody in camp is blowing it. Where is it coming from? It's coming from Sinai. And Moses says, people, it's time to meet with God. They were trembling. I imagine many were like, oh, I'll take a pass. But Moses insisted, and they came to the foot of the mountain to see 
this manifestation, or theologians called it a theophany, this appearance of God. Verse 18, all Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. And the smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain shook with a violent earthquake. At the heart of God's manifestation is fire. As they look into the dense cloud, they're realizing that the reason there's smoke there is because there's fire there. There is this ball of raging fire at the top of Sinai. And the mountain starts to shake and there's earthquake and thunder and horn. Man, it's a bombardment of the senses. Can you imagine the intensity of that moment? Folks, the attributes of God that elicit fear are on display in this particular theophany. Do you see that? Let's let's just meditate for a moment here and think about these various attributes. The first I'd like to point out is the earthquake. The earthquake, what does it demonstrate? It demonstrates the power of God. God is powerful, powerful beyond our capacity to comprehend. He made the universe. He launched the galaxies and sent them spinning. His power is beyond any in the universe. And when he shook the ground, the people realized, oh my, this God is more powerful than I realized. Earthquakes do that. We don't have earthquakes by us. Well, you don't have earthquakes by you. I do by my house. We bought a house on the train track. And do you know when the train rolls by, it shakes the house, literally. You feel it vibrating and the dishes rattle. And uh, you say, you're, you're a fool for buying a house that close to the train track. Oddly enough, I like it. My last house that I lived in for 14 years was right on the train track, and it rattled the house as well. So when the realtor said, um, if you have wanted to buy this house because of its proximity to the train, we were like, that's a selling point for us. We love that. And let me explain why. First of all, my son adores trains. Having grown up, seeing the train run through his backyard, he just loves trains. And I actually have a, a choo-choo of his from when he was a toddler. We've kept it. He just choo-choo, choo-choo, you know, and I thought, this is a pathetic uh, picture of what a true train is like. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this looks so harmless and so soft. And so at one point when Jake was still a toddler, I thought the poor kid needs to know what a real train is like. And I, since it was in our backyard, I picked him up and I walked back and we stood about eight feet away from the tracks. I don't know if you've ever done that when a freight train rolls by. It is an experience. Talk about the ground shaking. You talk about thundering sound that just pounds on your chest. And wind and the power of that train is just so evident it takes your breath away. You know, and, and I looked at my son when it had passed, and his eyes were this big, you know, and I go, that's a train, Jake. And, you know, he was both terrified, and he says, that was awesome, Dad, awesome. I think for a lot of us, our view of God is like a choo-choo. 
He's wonderful. He's so nice. And when we look at Jesus, the manifestation of God in human flesh, you see the picture of him carrying the lamb. One side of him is as gentle and meek and mild as you can get. But don't be mistaken. He is not a choo-choo. The Almighty God, even Christ, when he is displayed in his heavenly glory, we will see power in him that if we could realize it, we'd have a response of fear. Our knees would knock. It would take our breath away at the manifestation of God's divine power. Let's move on to the next one. So fire, what does fire speak of? Fire is, throughout Scripture, a symbol of holiness. I love fire. I'm a bit of a pyromaniac myself. But a a roaring bonfire, the the beauty of it, the, the purity. There are no germs. There are no impurities in a fire. They've all been burned away. It's a picture of holiness. And we are both drawn to the beautiful glory of a fire. At the same time, we get too close and we realize we are incompatible with that fire. It will burn us. And so the holiness of God is like that. He is so pure. There is no hint of moral imperfection in him. He is so holy. That's what holiness is. And as a result, we are drawn to his holiness. But as we get near to his holiness, we are reminded of our own sinfulness and how fire Uh, is incompatible with that sin, and we stop, and we realize that we have no business being in his presence. He is holy, and we are not. The holy, the absolute purity of God is one of those attributes that makes us tremble. Next, lightning. Lightning speaks of the justice of God, that God can strike down and execute justice. He is the judge And he says, the unjust will not go unpunished. And God sits with the power to command damnation, both now and eternally. He brings justice in the world. He disciplines his own. The just, the judge nature of God should cause us to tremble. I have a friend who's a district uh, attorney for, actually, uh, prosecuting attorney for the uh, city of Naperville. And he says, it drives me crazy sometimes seeing these people stand before the judge with disrespect, you know, mocking him, failing to recognize that he has the power to send them to jail. Show some honor. You're in the presence of the great judge. Next, trumpet. A trumpet is a announcement of majesty, of the king is in your presence. That's the royal fanfare that plays out. And so as that trumpet rang at Mount Sinai, it was announcing the arrival of the king. And a king is worthy of our trembling honor. And I got blank faces. We Americans don't understand kings and royalty, do we? We just don't have that. As evidenced by a blunder that took place a couple months ago by LeBron James. Uh, the, the royalty, uh, uh, Duke William and Duchess Kate were in New York. Some of you read about that. And LeBron James, hey, photo op. And he comes up and he puts his arm around the future queen of England. 
which, you know, you're like, yeah, so what's the big deal about that? That is a grotesque violation of royal protocol. Everybody in England was just appalled. (gasps) What is, get your hand off our future queen. I mean, that is unthinkable. But we just don't think that way. We're just, she's just another person. Yeah, you know. Look at her right here. She's got a smile, but she's thinking, what do I do? He's touching me. He's just... And he's like, if you were any smaller, I'd beat you up, but I can't. So... <laughs> LeBron is like, I'm King James, and I got my queen. You know? Anyways, point being is that we just don't connect with the notion of royalty, but we will someday. We should practice now because God is royal. He is a king. He is the king of all kings. And we need to recognize him as such and learn to show great honor to his majesty and tremble before his kingship. One, one more. Uh, after the trumpet would be the cloud. Uh, the cloud, it says it was a dense cloud, meaning you couldn't see through it. It veiled the manifestation of God, and that would point to his mystery. One of the things that makes God awe-inspiring is that though he has revealed so much of who he is, so much remains hidden. And there is this mysterious side to God that is quite beautiful. It will be delightful throughout eternity to every day, forever and ever, continue to step deeper into our knowledge and understanding of our magnificent God. The combination of these manifestations alluding to these attributes of God create fear. And that's what we see the people respond with. Let me show you their response by turning to the next chapter, Exodus 20, verse 18. It says this, When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the horn, when they saw the lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. That's the fear of the Lord. Continuing to read verse 19, And they said to Moses, Tell us what God says, and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us directly. If he does, we're going to die. They are so freaked out, they are so consumed with fear, that they don't want anything to do with God. They say, Moses, you go to God, you talk to God, and relay what he says to us, and we'll obey. But going to God, uh -uh. talking to God, uh -uh. we're too terrified. And so in this particular instance, the fear of God is making them stand at a distance and uninterested with intimacy with God. Is that how the fear of God is supposed to operate? Is that the goal? Does God want to cause such panic that we run away from him and say, no, I want nothing to do with you? And the answer is no. That, that is a misapplication of the fear of God. It's understandable, but it's not the plan of God, as evidenced by what Moses says next. Verse 20, don't be afraid. Moses, this is weird. Uh, you're going to see a, almost an inherent contradiction in this verse. Don't be afraid, Moses said. For God has come in this way to show you his awesome power. 
from now on, let your fear of him keep you from sinning. God came in this way so that you'd have fear of him to keep you from sinning. God wants you to have fear of him, but don't be afraid. <laughs> Do you see the contrast? One, one part here is saying, don't be afraid. The other is saying, let your fear of him serve you well. And, and you say, which is it, fear or no fear? And then the answer is understood in this way. If it's a fear that makes you run away from God, like they were saying, God, Moses says, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid of him in that way. The, the fear of God should not drive us away from God. We, we should not find, if, if that's what's happening, we have an incomplete theology. The fear of God may make us approach him with head low and a bit trembling, but we should approach him. And the, 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 the reconciliation is found in understanding the, the cross of Jesus Christ, is it not? Are we sinners with a holy God? We are. Do we deserve his wrath and judgment? We do. But does he love us so much that he sent Christ to pave a way for sinners to be made holy as a gift so they can enter into intimacy and love relationship with him? Yes. And so the irony of the gospel message is that understanding our fear of him, we say, I know that by myself, I have no business knowing you. You are the awesome king of kings. You are the judge of the universe, and I am an unholy sinner. Yet through Christ, we are made holy and invited to do the unthinkable. And that's approach this awesome God. Jesus went so far as to say, call the great Yahweh. Call him Abba. Remember, Abba means daddy. We are to approach him and climb up in his lap. And you say, I don't know, these two just don't mix for me. When I look at my earthly father, I am blessed with a sense of how these two mix. Because uh, despite his Halloween bad idea, my dad was, is a fantastic father. And I both loved him and feared him. I didn't fear inappropriate outbursts of rage. But I understood he was my authority. <laughs> and I understood he wielded the, uh, the responsibility to discipline me. And he was big, still is a strong man. And I looked at him, and I, I saw other kids who looked at their dad and said, No, I won't. And I was like, ah, You don't just defy your father in that way. I just understood that. I, I trembled in an appropriate way at the respect I had for my dad and his authority. And yet at the same time, I loved him, you know, and ran into his lap and basked in his Abba love. And, and that's what God wants. If we relate to God with one, you know, all love, no fear, that's a dishonoring, unbalanced relationship. If we relate to God with all trembling fear and no love, that is theologically insufficient in response. We must have a well-balanced two-sided relationship. I'll show you a picture. This, this picture uh, you may recognize. Back in 1963, a, a, a photographer by the name of Stanley Tretek worked for Look Magazine. I don't even remember Look Magazine. 
but he was invited into the Oval Office to take pictures of President Kennedy, and he saw John Jr., apparently this ancient desk that so many presidents have used has a little trap door in it, and John Jr. stuck his head out. I guess John called this his house, his secret house, and this his secret door, and he loved to play at the feet of the most powerful man in the world. When this picture came out in Look Magazine, it instantly became a classic. The American people just loved it. People framed it, made it into posters. And it asked, I have to ask, why is the picture so famous and so beloved? Cute kid, nice desk, but that's not it, is it? It's the irony that the picture displays. The irony of a boy who has the unspeakable privilege of being so at home, near power and authority. You know, the Oval Office would make us tremble. The, the, the desk where the world policy is signed, you know, is just so incredible. And yet, he says, I don't deny the, the genuine authority and power of dad, but he is still dad to me. That is you. Do you realize that? You are a child of the king. You have been adopted into his family. It doesn't take away his kingship. And you, we should still say, you are the mighty judge and king of all, holy and powerful, and I tremble before you. But I also crawl up in your lap and call you Abba. That is our story. Can I go back to verse 20? There's something that I, I just don't want us to miss. It says, from now on, let the fear, your fear of him, keep you from sinning. Admittedly, that statement probably doesn't strike you as one you want to memorize anytime soon. Oh, I want to fear God, so I stop sinning. You know, the image is like God's like going to smack us if you do that, you know. And, and yet I would challenge you to lean into that verse and to think about it a bit because freedom is in it. We all want freedom from our vices. We've all got these things we keep doing, these sins that will not release their grip on our lives. And we fall to them again and again. And we say, how do I stop? According to this verse, key from getting free of that is this thing called the fear of God. This was evident to me recently when I was challenging a man who was in an adulterous affair. Uh, He claimed to be a Christian. And I tried to point out the inconsistency of his lifestyle. I said, what are you you doing? And he said, oh, Jeff, I I love this gal. And he started justifying what he was doing. I said, you're married. And he said, I know. And then he started explaining to me all the ways his wife is failing him and how this woman is loving him like he should be loved. And, And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're a Christian. He goes, yeah. As a Christian, we are supposed to submit to the leadership of God. Yeah. I said, do you think God wants you to be having this affair? No, I know God doesn't want me to have the affair. But you're going to continue. He goes, yeah. And in that moment, I just thought, this man needs the fear of God. This man 
is looking God in the eyes saying, hey, king, know what you want. Not going to do it. Slapping him in the face, in a sense. And I was feeling pretty high and mighty in my critique of this guy when God turned it on me and said, Jeff, you do the same thing. Not with this issue. But how many times do you willfully sin? You know what I want, and you do it anyways. You know I'm saying, don't look at that. And you can all relate to this. God says, don't look at that, and you look at that. Don't go there, and you go there. Don't say that, and you say it. Don't think that, and you think it. Don't drink that, and you drink it. Don't eat that, and you eat it. We are all guilty of willful defiance of God. And when we do it, and to the extent that we do it, it simply demonstrates that we are underdeveloped in our fear of God. If we, maybe we've OD'd on the love and grace side of God. We're like, oh, he's so loving, he's so gracious. Pastor, preach another love sermon. And and we so love that side of him. But we have lost the trembling side. We, We have not focused on those attributes that make us in awe of him. And if we did more, if we trembled more, if we had more fear, those moments, sin would look like a really bad idea. And we'd find victory over those vices. And so I, for one, desire to grow in my fear of God. I desire to grow in my love of God as well. But if we desire to grow in our fear of him, how do we do it? And I'd like to close by just pointing to three ways that we can develop more of the fear of God. And the first is meditation. Just as the Israelites came to Mount Sinai, and in this particular theophany, there are going to be more at Sinai, and God will reveal different attributes of his character. But in this particular theophany, God is revealing those attributes that are terrifying. We need to meditate on those attributes. The power of God, and the, the, the majesty of God, and the, and the justice of God, and the the mystery of God. We need to look at those things and say, man, those are really true. And I've actually developed some triggers, some little reminders, if you will, for me to think about those traits of God. Maybe I'll pass them on and you can find benefit with them. For me, one of them, probably not surprised, is the train. Every time the train rolls by our house and the house shakes, I pause for a moment and just say, God, you are powerful beyond my wildest imagination. You may not have the benefit of a shaking house, but you see the train. Let it remind you of his power. A thunderstorm. Open the window or go out on the porch. Watch a thunderstorm and let it remind you of his, his majesty, his justice, his power. Or, or maybe it's the stars, to look out at the stars and consider the vastness of the universe and let that just be a reminder, again, to pause and meditate on how huge God is. Or maybe it's fire. Every time you see a fire in the fireplace or a bonfire someplace, 
Let fire remind you that he is a consuming fire. He is holy and pure, and and we are only holy through the grace of Christ. So meditation on it as much as possible. The second is worship. Uh, Worship reminds us of God's glory. Here's a verse found in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Worship God with holy fear and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Worship is a great way to be reminded that he is high and we are low. He is creator and we are creation. He is majesty and we are subjects. Worship is all about you deserve my glory and praise. And those who press into worship, who seek to see God in their mind's eye during those songs, are being blessed with a growing instinctive knowledge of God's majesty and will be blessed with more of the fear of God. Worship him with trembling awe at how great he is. And then lastly, we have meditation, worship, and repentance. Folks, as I, as I mentioned, those who lack the fear of God can just sin without blushing. Those who lack the fear of God can just dive into spiritual rebellion and they have no remorse. They're just like, whatever, he can deal with it. Well, when we sin, we foster the fear of God when we repent with heartfelt remorse, where we hate our sin, where we don't treat it lightly. We don't just say, oops, did it again, oh well. You know, if, if, you're, if you have a lighthearted response to your own sin, you are fostering the opposite, and that is a disregard for God's holiness. But if in repentance you say, oh, God, I hate my sin. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. But I want to change. I don't want to dishonor your name by repeating this pattern. And Lord, as many times as I sin, I will repent again and again with heartfelt remorse. I'm not going to beat myself up, but I am going to let you know I don't view it lightly. I sinned again against a holy God whom I love and whom deserves better. And through genuine repentance, we are raising our view of God and we are developing a healthy reverence and fear of him. And so those three, can I encourage us? Meditate often about those attributes that instill fear. Worship him with focused attention to his majesty and repent with remorse and heart connection. And in those practices, we will find increasingly our view of God being raised and our thoughts of him becoming worthy of him. And we will develop the fear of God, and the love of God. He is Abba, Daddy, but he is also the great I Am and the King of Kings and the creator of the universe. Let's know him as he fully is, amen? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, as we approach you in worship now, I pray that you would help us to begin, maybe, to develop greater reverence for your holiness, for your greatness, for your power and majesty. God, teach us 
to relate to you fully. We want a relationship with you that is healthy and right and rich. We want to know you as you really are and respond accordingly. Open our eyes during this song that we sing. Help us to see your greatness and give you the praise that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.